Whether they're acting like a damning recording of Trump talking about classified documents is actually real, or they're feigning that the candidacy of the next two Republicans to announce are serious threats, the media does one thing consistently. They pretend. They always pretend. This is the Propaganda Report's Drive Time News Blast. I am Brad Binkley. The 2024 GOP primary field is set to get even bigger next week as two more Republicans are expected to announce their candidacy. This, according to two separate persons familiar with each candidate's matters. That's right, those were the sources. Person familiar with the matters. Must we continue to do this? Do we really have to continue citing unnamed sources who are speaking only on the condition of anonymity for stories as inconsequential as these? These are stories about presidential announcements, not the revelation of sensitive military secrets. No one's going into hiding after leaking information about some idiot who everyone knows is not going to win running for president. You don't exactly have to go into witness protection for that one. Yet they continue to do these pre-announcements to the announcement stories. Secret sources tell them as though everyone on the planet doesn't know that this is just a publicity stunt, a tactic designed to cause media buzz that the candidate is well aware of and approves of. Everyone knows that. So can we stop pretending now that these are real anonymous sources that must be protected? Give me a break. And while we're at it, can we please stop pretending that these two candidates in particular are serious candidates? They're not. Everyone knows they're not. Nobody's fooled. Just look at these two candidates of the two of them expected to announce next week. Chris Christie is a candidate that no one in America wants. Literally. No one wants him. He's currently polling nationally at 0%. And the other candidate, Mike Pence, is a candidate that almost no one in America wants, as he's currently polling nationally at 4%. That's right. The two guys who everyone in the news are pretending are serious candidates today are when you combine them together, polling nationally at 4%. Yet, meanwhile, CNN's having a 45-minute panel discussion where everyone pretends that this isn't absurd. That's all these people do. They play pretend every day. Everyone plays pretend. Christie, some might argue, is running not to win, but to stop Trump, to which I would say he's polling at 0% nationally. Okay? Unless it's a hot dog eating contest, Chris Christie isn't stopping anyone. And if his 0% nationally isn't bad enough, look at his numbers in New Jersey according to a poll from earlier this month, which found that, this is crazy, 70% of New Jersey Republicans said they would not consider voting for Christie regardless of who else sought the nomination. It doesn't matter who you stick in there. They're not, they're not going for Christie. And this is a state that he was governor of. You could put Dianne Feinstein in there as a Republican, and 70% of Republicans in the state that he was governor of are going with Feinstein over Chris Christie, yet he's taken that and a 0% nationally going for the presidency, and MSNBC is dedicating a segment talking with very serious, stern looks on their faces about how he could be a real factor in this race. Give me a break. Stop effing pretending. That's all they do all day long in the media. Dress up in suits, go to work, and play pretend all day. It's embarrassing. I have a prediction. It's a bold prediction Neither one of them win. All right, keep on that same theme. Let's talk about another pretend story. This one broke from CNN last night. Here's the headline. Trump captured on tape talking about classified document he kept after leaving the White House. 
This is big trouble, we were told in the reports on most of the mainstream networks last night. Big, big trouble for Trump. MSNBC even went as far as declaring this alleged bombshell as the final nail in the coffin for Trump. But what did Trump actually say on this tape that's so damning? Let's play the clip. Oh, wait, that's right. There is no clip. There's no clip to play because the networks that are reporting definitive conclusions about this story haven't actually heard Trump say anything on any tape because federal prosecutors have it. CNN, the one who broke the story, it admits this three paragraphs in. And anytime they make an admission like this and it's not in the very first sentence of the article, then you're dealing with a publication that is trying to deceive you. Because this is very important information that if you care about truth, you want to make sure people do not miss because they, they could come to the wrong conclusions, which is typically what they want people to do, which is why they bury it in the third paragraph. Especially with everything, the headline about the, the headlines of all of these stories about this make these, it, it, they imply that it's just hands down, they got Trump finally. And then that claim just breaks down and it windles into nothing by the end of every single one uh, of these articles. Here's what CNN admitted in the third paragraph of their article. It says, CNN has not listened to the recording, but multiple sources described it. Oh, wow. Had it only been one source without a name, one anonymous source, I I would have been a little suspicious. But multiple people who I have no idea who they are, that's something that I trust. The publication that broke this viral story has not even listened to the recording. And everything they tell us relies on sources who are not even named. And those sources were not even at the meeting that was recorded where Trump said these things. They only heard what he said through a recording, allegedly. So they have second information, the unnamed sources, which means that everything everything that CNN concludes in this article, which there's a lot of conclusions, is based on third-hand information from unnamed sources. That's important because the damning nature of the story, at least, the damning nature that they claim is a product of conclusions drawn by CNN based on their interpretation of third-hand information. Kind of weakens the whole idea that they finally got them when you realize that. And for anything that they're asserting to be true in this article, what they have to prove is they have to prove that Trump intentionally retained a document that he knew was classified and in violation of federal law, and that he also knew that he could not declassify documents post-presidency. Let's see how they do in in making this argument. Here's a story according to CNN. Federal prosecutors have obtained an audio recording of a summer 2021 meeting in which former President Trump acknowledges he held on to a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran. This according to those unnamed sources, multiple of them, mind you, not just one, multiple. CNN then declares that this undercuts Trump's argument that he declassified everything. So, Notice that CNN, that was their interpretation of what the unnamed sources told them, which means they have to presume that what the unnamed sources told them is absolute fact, which I think is absolutely not fact, because notice how what they claim that Trump acknowledged, which would be him acknowledging that he broke federal law in this audio, they were very generic uh, about... or what they said that he said. They they didn't quote any specific things that he said. Wouldn't you want to have some specific quotes if you're claiming that Trump said something so damning? No specific quotes for, from these unnamed sources. Seems odd. My guess is that these sources did not actually hear Trump make this admission. Instead, what they did was they interpreted something else that Trump said, which was almost definitely not an admission. They interpreted it as one anyway. This is how the propaganda model works. You'll see in a minute... Uh, evidence supporting this in this very article. The article then goes on to say that 
The recording indicates Trump understood that he retained classified material after leaving the White House. Again, that is CNN's interpretation of what these unnamed sources told them, which presumes that what the sources said are fact. CNN is drawing conclusions that indicates Trump's frame of mind from audio that they have not heard that was only described to them, which they have to presume is true, which I think is pretty obvious is not. This is third-hand mind reading being reported as hard evidence is what this is. The article then assures us that their sources, CNN sources, said the recording is an important piece of evidence in a possible case against Trump. First of all, possible case doesn't sound very convincing. Secondly, the word important here is put in quotes. Earlier in this article, they, they said that Trump admitted to having classified documents, yet they put none of that very general stuff that they said in quotes, yet now they're putting the word important in quotes. This tells me that Trump absolutely said none of the things that they claimed that he said earlier in this article, which we will continue to see more evidence of this as we go through this article. I mean, it's just a con. Also, is CNN source here a lawyer? Because if, if it's not a lawyer, then how would they know what classifies as an important piece of evidence in a proceeding. They would be unqualified to make that claim. Is the source someone working on this investigation who's leaking information to CNN? I mean, that's a possibility, I guess. CNN has not said that, and I guess they wouldn't. But if that were the case, that this was somebody in the inside this investigation leaking things to CNN, then that would make the choice of the word possible even more telling about how underwhelming they view this audio and any other evidence that they found to be. And it would also make the fact that they're leaking this information to CNN, to the press, it would make it look like they are trying to shape a public opinion about this audio before it actually gets released, instead of relying on the public listening to it and it being so clearly damning that they come to the conclusion themselves that it is. They're clearly not confident. They, they clearly know that any person objectively who heard the audio would not find it damning because they're trying to brainwash people to finding it damning, to coming, forming an opinion about it, which is, you know, put into their brain by CNN before they ever hear it, so that once they do hear it, their mind is made up and confirmation bias kicks in. That's what it makes it look like if this is actually somebody who is inside the investigation. Maybe it's not. Looks that way anyway. Next, the article explains more of the damning audio to us, helps us understand it, even though they haven't actually heard it. Tells us how Trump was calling into question something General Miley said about Iran and that Trump told them that if he could show it to the people, it would undermine the claim General Miley was making. Sounds like Trump is saying what he said isn't the truth. Here's the truth. Trump's telling his story. CNN calls the alleged classified document here it. If he could show it to people. They don't put anything Trump says in quotes or that he allegedly said. Why would they not put that? I mean, they just put the word important in quotes. Yet nothing that they're trying to convince people that Trump said, do they put in quotes? I mean, would you not want to repeat his exact words? The sources could remember the word important was said, but they, they could not remember anything that Trump actually said, which is the most important part of their claim. It then says that while Trump was saying these things or allegedly saying these things about Miley, he was referring to the document as if it were in front of him. Now, how would they know that they were only listening? Well, Trump is a good storyteller, and good storytellers put people in that moment, which you're going to see why that's important in a second, because this is how Trump talks when, he, when he's telling a story. He brings people into the moment. He acts it out. This is a, a stand-up comedy technique, a storytelling technique. When you act out a story, you put yourself in the present moment of that story, even if it occurred in the past. And, and it sounds to me 
if any of this stuff is even remotely true, that what Trump was actually doing was acting out moments when this conflict with Miley arose during his presidency. And he's recreate. he's going back and he's recreating that as good storytellers do, describing Miley. And in his mind, he's living that moment again, going, Miley was wrong about this. I'm standing there. I'm in the Oval Office. I have this document. So, so he, he's talking about Trump of 2020 when he says, I have this document. The only I could show it to people. And he, he's not literally talking about having the classified document in hand. And as he's telling the story, he reaches down, grabs the nearest piece of paper, and uses it as a prop. This is what storytellers do. I do this all the time. Trump does this all the time. And this would explain, it helped explain for me anyway, the inclusion of this next paragraph in the article, which it didn't make any sense to me why they included it first, but now it does. And the article says that sources say that while Trump was telling this story, talking about him, the general, that they could hear the sound of paper rustling on the recording as if Trump was waving the document around to which they then admit that it's not clear if that was the actual Iran document in question because it definitely wasn't. I guarantee you it wasn't the Iran document. Watch any Trump rally. This is what he does. He grabs things nearby, recreates the past story he's telling as though he's reliving it back in that moment. And yet their entire argument that Trump broke the law hinges on that piece of paper they heard rustling being an actual classified document instead of what it almost definitely was, which is a prop in a story Trump was telling. And to that point, we know that about Trump. That is how Trump behaves if you pay attention to him. And the the assumption, I think, would be that Trump is behaving as he normally does when he's around a group of people telling a story, which is that is what was happening on that call. And so what do we know about how the media always behaves or always reports on Trump? Well, we know that they will always intentionally misinterpret his words to mean something that they very clearly do not, like they did when they talk about Trump's call with Brad Raffensperger. I mean, that, that's not that, that intentional misinterpretation of his words and, and just making making up some intent in mind reading. That's just something that they'll just do sometimes. That, that's what they always do. That's their standard of reporting. They will always ignore the most obvious interpretation of what he says and presume his intent was something completely ridiculous that obviously was not that serves their narrative. And they'll they'll do so while also refusing and demonizing anybody who, who acknowledges the existence of other possible interpretations. I mean, it's crazy. And knowing that knowing that they do that, I, I think we should assume that that's what they're doing here, just as we should assume that Trump is behaving as Trump does in that phone call or not phone call, but audio. And then the article, strangely, at first, I, I didn't get this at first, but after I realized what was going on, made perfect made perfect sense. The article says sources told CNN. There's also laughter in the room that's captured on the recording. That's interesting. What could they possibly be laughing at? Oh, that's right. Trump is telling a story. He's recreating a time when he's having that fight, which he loves telling about those fights. And I got him and, and, and how he got the guy back when he was in the White House, reliving it, filling the story with jokes, as he always does. And I'd be willing to bet that some of the things that CNN and these other sources are claiming that Trump said that are so damning were actually obvious jokes that they are just pretending that they don't realize are obvious jokes and instead are interpreting literally and in the worst possible way, which is another thing they always do. They always do that. They always pretend that an obvious joke is not a joke. Like when Trump said, uh, uh, Russia, please find Hillary emails, that, that was the most obvious joke in the history of the world. They still act like it wasn't. Espionage. So there's almost definitely no classified document in Trump's hand during that recording. And Trump is almost definitely not admitting to have taken classified documents with what he's saying in the recording, because what, what he almost definitely is doing 
is what uh, I was just talking about. He's doing what he always does, recreating a story about his conflict with Miley in an entertaining fashion, equipped with act-outs, jokes, and a piece of the nearest paper that he can use as a prop. This is the most likely explanation if we assume Trump is acting like he always does, and we assume CNN is interpreting him the way that they always do, which is exactly why that tape has not been released yet. Because if this tape were public and people could make up their own minds, have their own interpretations, it would be obvious that there is nothing here. So what's happening is the media is going to tell this fabricated version of the story before their audience ever hears the audio, before the audio is ever released, so that they can brainwash them to coming to a conclusion about the audio before ever hearing it. That way, when they do hear it, they're blinded and their confirmation bias just takes over. We would have heard the tape a long time ago if it were as damning as they're trying to convince people that it is. This is simply another case of the media fitting the common theme for today's show, pretending. They're just pretending that there's damning evidence when they know that there's nothing. In fact, here they are, CNN, pretending real hard as they discuss this super serious story. Jake Tapper, where was this meeting? What was it about? This meeting was back in the summer of 2021 at Trump's Bedminster Golf Club. And among the people in attendance were several Trump aides and two people working on an autobiography of Mark Meadows. Now, Mark Meadows was not in attendance at this meeting, but during this time, Trump was in the habit of having his aides record any conversations with journalists, writers, or people working on books. Now, sources... Okay, that's what I wanted you to hear there. Trump was the one having the conversation recorded. So we are to believe that Trump made this alleged damning admission during a conversation in which he knew was being recorded because he was the one having it recorded. That's what we have to believe to accept their story. Let's continue. We get some hardcore pretending here with many of the questions that come to mind being answered in a very short clip here. Because it's the question that everyone wants answered. What did he know and when did he know it? The idea of did he and was he aware that he was not able to retain classified documents? Well, you can check that off the list for a variety of reasons. Did he know that there was a declassification procedure? Of course he did. Did he intend to do so and retain it, even though he was aware that the NRA, the, the, uh, NARA, excuse me, not the NRA, the NARA actually wanted it back? Absolutely. And so all you have now is the investigation trying to prove the thing that you normally eludes you, somebody's intent. You have intent, if this is reporting is true, intent that this actually did happen. For Jack Smith and his team, you have an otherwise clear-cut case, <laughs> documents in someone's possession, ought to be returned. Was there intent? This suggests that there was. It's a very streamlined prosecutorial proof model. Very streamlined prose- prosecutorial proof model. So this, this is evidence of intent, she says. Or is that intent coming from their interpretation? Uh, was, when you're talking about intent like this, that makes it even more clear to me that Trump didn't say the things about the classified documents that these articles all start off saying that he said, that they interpreted it that way. Because if he actually said them and it's on a recording, then she wouldn't have to be talking about how all of this shows the intent because he would have just said it. They, they act like he actually blatantly admitted to violating the crime at the beginning of this article that we went through. So... Very helpful. She says Trump knew that he wasn't allowed to retain classified documents. He also knew he couldn't declassify them post-presidency, and therefore he broke federal law. Clear-cut case, bing, bang, boom, except 
something's a little, a little bit off here. Even if we set aside reality for a moment and we presume the conclusions that she drew from this are true, we would have to believe, in order to believe that, we would have to believe that the person responsible for recording Trump's damning admission that he broke federal law was Trump. He's the one who recorded it. Trump recorded himself committing crimes like he's Hunter Biden or something, and now he's going down. He got himself. Is that believable? Is it believable that Trump would admit to breaking the law when he knew he was being recorded because he ordered his age to record it? You know, I, I think it's far more likely that they're pretending than that is believable. And finally, another one of these chicks sums up perfectly this alleged evidence that the entire story depends on. I should be very clear. We have not heard what this audio recording is. It is something that the Justice Department has. They clearly have heard, and it's quite substantial for him. What we've been able to do is reconstruct what we can understand about what Donald Trump is saying there, or at least implying when he's holding up a paper and shaking it around. And, and Paul, you notice that. So they were saying in the article early on that he said things, but now we see what's really going on here. They haven't heard the thing, so they're reconstructing what they can understand about what Trump is implying. Reconstructing what they can understand about what Trump is implying when he's holding up a piece of paper and shaking it. This is their evidence. They're pretending. They are always pretending. I think I've made my point. Unfortunately, the people who hate Trump will believe this fictional tale that they've spun when the audio is finally released. Their mind will already have been programmed, brainwashed, to believe what their confirmation bias will blind them to. The reality it will blind them to. All right, next story. Things continue not to look so good for old Bill Gates when it comes to his ties to Jeffrey Epstein. Last week, we learned that Epstein sent Gates an email attempting to blackmail Gates with knowledge of an affair Gates had had or was having with a Russian bridge player named Mila Antonova, who, if she did not fit the profile of a Russian spy to begin with, she certainly did or does now after images from 2010 of her in New York with well-known Russian spy Anna Chapman surfaced. Chapman was part of a ring of Russian spies who carried out long-term deep cover assignments in the U.S. around that time. And she's just casually hanging with him. So, so it's now no longer a stretch to say that Bill Gates probably had an affair with a young Russian spy who was using Bridge as a cover, who seemed to actively seek out a relationship with Gates. I mean, that seems like the most likely explanation at this point. So what does that mean for Gates? Why did she target Gates? What was she after? What information did Gates reveal to her in intimate moments? Does she still have compromising information about him? If she ever did, and she probably did, and why did she just talk to the Wall Street Journal right now? I, I mean, I'm curious about that. Is she trying to put that out there so, you know, a hit doesn't get put on her? Just speculating, obviously, that Bill Gates would never do a thing like that. Shouldn't Bill Gates be asked about this instead of being allowed a platform to talk about, you know, genetically modifying uh, mosquitoes and, and climate change all the time? And, and the facts. I think perhaps he should be asked about this instead. Unfortunately, though, for Gates, his troubles don't stop there with the almost definitely Russian spy. More information about Gates' relationship with Jeffrey Epstein was revealed yesterday from a trove of Epstein's private calendars and emails that were obtained by the Daily Mail. These documents, which uh, are hundreds of pages, originally came from Epstein's estate. They were given to the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands during its investigation into his sex trafficking ring, and now the Daily Mail has posted an in-depth report on what's in them. Now, some of these I remember from 2019. It's not it's not new information, but other stuff I don't. I, it's hundreds of pages, so it's hard to get through all of it. 
But there are a number of people who were not previously linked to Epstein whose names appear in these documents, as well as some familiar names who we've known have been linked to him for a long time. Some of those names being Chris Rock, Wendy Murdoch, Richard, Richard Branson, Peter Thiel, David Blaine, Bill Gates, and more, obviously. But not all of them, specifically Chris Rock, appear to have actually met with Epstein. Epstein just had him listed at some point as someone he was trying to schedule and make contact with. That's what Epstein did. He targeted wealthy and powerful individuals and attempted to develop relationships with them and in the process gained some sort of knowledge and leverage over them that he could later use to blackmail them uh, if necessary. So here's what else we found out about Gates in uh, these documents. The documents reveal more details about Epstein's attempt to get Gates to be the face of that $100 million per person J.P. Morgan fund for elite donors that Epstein was trying to set up and set up in a way that Epstein would get millions of dollars worth of kickbacks in the process. The two met several times in 2011 to discuss this matter, and during that same period, Epstein had been communicating with top J.P. Morgan banker Mary Rhodes about this fund, and on August 15th of that year, Epstein emailed her and claimed in the email that Bill Gates would have access to higher quality people, investments, allocation, governance, without upsetting either his marriage or the current uh, sensitivities of his current foundation employees. Access to higher quality people is an interesting statement. That's the type of thing you might hear someone say when they're talking about a friend or family member who maybe is addicted to drugs, hanging out with with criminals. You know, uh, it it just seems a little weird, though, when someone's saying that about one of the world's richest men. Is the implication that Gates was currently dealing with people Epstein viewed as low quality or low class? Or maybe he knew that the chick he was banging was a Russian spy, and he's saying, we set up this fund— it's a way for Gates to pay her off and get away from that Russian spy and get, get around some of the more high-quality sex slaves that uh, Epstein could provide him. Uh, it's, it's an interesting—Epstein he, he used, Epstein uses all these ways of speaking that are just so obviously code. Another email Epstein sent to a Rhodes hints at what the purpose of this fund was, besides making millions for Epstein, obviously. In the message that he sent to the J.P. Morgan banker, he suggested that J.P. Morgan make it possible— for donors to give anonymously in case their involvement proved problematic for them. And specifically, the email to the banker said, though membership in the club could be known, the gifts can be given anonymously. This will fulfill the wishes of many that have spoken to Bill about wanting to do things but not wanting to, but not wanting the publicity. For example, another school program, etc., may have expressed reservations that giving publicity would send a complex message to those institutions that have already close relations to that donor. Or perhaps, this is me suggesting this, another example might be a married billionaire wanting to pay for coding school for that Russian spy he's banging so she doesn't talk, but not wanting his name to be attached to the payment. Seems like something that a fund like this could help with. Just speculation. It looks like Epstein was trying to create a fund that these wealthy people could pour money into and then use anonymously to pay for their problems to go away without getting busted. That's what it looks like. Another email with the J.P. Morgan banker, Epstein bragged that this will be a very high profile, that this will be very high profile. It will be the most exclusive of clubs. The fund never worked out, but it's clear that Gates was far more involved with Epstein than he previously let on, which I think we suspected. In fact, Epstein continued courting Gates despite it not working out. He scheduled a dinner with Gates in October 2013. The following January, Epstein wrote a note in his schedule to follow up, read the sweatshirts for Bill and others, apparently referring to a gift he had in mind for Gates. Weeks later, Epstein indicated he had a Skype call with Gates. In, in, in September 2014, Gates went to New York for a number of meetings with Epstein. On September 8th of that year, Epstein was 
to meet Gates and billionaire Tim Pritchker in Manhattan when they would then walk together to the office of Leon Black, followed by a meeting with Mort Zuckerman. Those, uh, those are two billionaire investors. And later that day, Gates and Epstein would then meet with Kathy Rumuller, who is a former Obama White House counsel. Interesting. Epstein's pursuit of Gates, according to the Daily Mail, appears to have culminated in a dinner at his New York home with Melinda Gates, which is thought to have been the only time she met Epstein. Epstein apparently rolled out the red carpet with some of his most important friends, including a Norwegian politician and diplomat, a former treasure, uh, Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers, a bunch of people. But apparently this so-called charm offensive didn't work, and Melinda later said she had nightmares about that evening and thought Epstein was evil personified. That's unfortunate. It's like her husband's best friend. The last entry for Gates and these schedules is from November 2014 when Epstein's pilot, Larry Vysoski, emailed Epstein's scheduler, Leslie Groff, to say that Epstein wanted to be in Washington by 1.30 to meet with Mr. Bill Gates in the afternoon. So does Bill Gates not have some questions to answer about his Jeffrey Epstein relationship and this Russian spy? I mean, can we not get somebody to ask him freaking questions about this instead of sucking him off every time he's on TV? This is evident. This is just the tip of the iceberg. I guarantee it. There will be more. Some other interesting revelations in those documents is that Epstein was having meetings with Obama White House counsel, that Kathy Rungler lady, while Obama was president. I mean, is that like after Epstein had spent 13 months in prison for having sex with an underage girl and had was a registered sex offender at the time, she met with Epstein and Gates. And then Epstein and Woody Allen and Peter Thiel. Is that typical for a White House counsel to meet multiple times with a registered sex offender? This doesn't seem like it's something that would be common. But, but what do I know? I don't work in the White House. And nobody asks Obama questions about this. The Mail reports, and I do remember this from a few years ago, that the most disturbing calendar entries feature, men, feature mention of Epstein making sure that wine was available for Jess Staley, who was the head of J.P. Morgan at the time, Staley met with Epstein 31 times in five years, and on four occasions, Epstein's schedules were told to have wine ready for him as soon as he arrived, which is believed to be a code word for something else, which maybe this next part will be revealing on that. Staley appeared to respond to an image of a young woman Epstein emailed him by referring to her as French wine. So perhaps it is code word for wine, and if you read all the ways they use wine in these emails, very creepy stuff. I mean, Epstein was a spy. Is there's any doubting that there's Epstein a spy? I don't know how you can doubt that. That's clearly, he, he was trying to compromise people. Some of these documents reveal how he apparently had intimate knowledge of Prince Andrew and Prince Andrew's wife, their financial situation, and how him and Andrew came to an agreement for some reason where he would pay a personal assistant of Andrew's ex-wife $17,000 to stabilize Prince Andrew's ex-wife's financial situation, which makes very little sense because her debt was like in the millions, apparently. And so why would Epstein do that? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Why, like, did they do something to that personal assistant and then they paid her off or him? I mean, we're beginning to get more and more confirmation of what many of us have known for a long, long time. That Epstein had compromising information on a lot of influential people. And we're starting to learn the details of how he targeted and gained these details in other ways than just his sex slaves. I mean, if he's not a spy, then he should have been. Who else are we going to find that he has compromising information about? And now on to the final story of the day. A fun story, I think. Employees at John Hopkins Medicine were issued a new guidebook this week with a list of 50 different gender pronouns that staff can use after a new ID badge policy was implemented. 50. I mean, 
that's like a new language to learn 50 gender pronouns. I mean, what's their hiring process like where they get, like, people who have 50 different gender pronouns who they're hiring? I mean, that's that's obnoxious there. As if medical school wasn't hard enough already, you got to learn all this. How'd they come up with that number, too? So if the cutoff is 50, then that's going to lead you open to being called exclusive. Because what about the 51st, 2nd, and 3rd? That's going to open you up to having your uh, your reputation smeared and your ESG falling. You have to include like a million. You just got to make an endless book of random, weird gender identities included on the, in this list of pronouns, and I'm not going to say them correctly because I don't know how to, are ourself, A-E-R-S-E-L-F, and Fayerself, F-A-E-R-S-E-L-F. I mean, can you imagine you're a patient at John Hopkins worried about your health and your doctor walks in to help you and on his, on their name tag it, it is my pronouns are fair self and this is a person who who who's, your life is in their hands I, I mean what a stressful situation some of the other pronouns that made the list were xe ve per and ae I mean, this is like gibberish and fortunately there's also directions on how to use these pronouns and every day Sentences such as, here's an example, A-E, A-E, I guess that's what it is, clean the office all by yourself. A-E, clean the office all by yourself. I mean, this sounds like they're dumbing people down here. And another example, I gave Fa'ir, F-A-E-R, the key, which I would advise against doing. Never do that. Never give someone whose gender pronoun is F-A-E-R, the key to anything, okay? Who wants to go to a hospital full of doctors just waiting to be offended? by their patients who might accidentally misgender them. That's just not, it's a recipe for disaster. The guide also tells employees how to correctly use Mr. for men and Miss for women and MX for non-binary. I love how we've come so far that we've reached a point to where MX and non-binary is so normalized that it's just grouped with the OG of Mr. and Miss. You know, like it's the one that, that's so traditional. Also, is the staff at this place incorrectly using Mr.? Like, if, if it's necessary to explain to your staff how to use Mr. correctly, you've hired the wrong people. I mean, that's just what everybody needs. They're a surgeon about to cut them open who needs a manual to explain how to use Mr. And, and they're about to, you know, remove one of your, give you an organ transplant. Doesn't give you a lot of confidence. Last year, John Hopkins updated its badge policy to allow staffers to choose the name displayed on their badges as it matches their gender identity. Good for them. The hospital also allows patients to use their chosen names on wristbands. Oh, that's nice. Which, you know, that's obviously not going to cause any problems with medical records or families trying to lo- locate hospitalized loved ones. So great idea there. Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, Goldfarb, former associate dean for curriculum at University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, expressed concern that this new policy could muddle vital communications between patients and staffers. Obviously, he said chosen names could suggest political bias. The most important component of the uh, physician-patient relationship is the ability to have clear and appropriate communication. To use pronouns associated with one's identification badge suggests that an individual has particular ideological and political perspectives. Also, using a name that suggests a different gender from what the patient can be clearly identified also could damage the physician-patient relationship and should be avoided. Isn't it wild that a hospital doesn't care about such valid concerns as those. I mean, those are obvious things. The guy is pointing out that when the health of patients 
is, is supposed to be the top priority when you operate your hospital in a way that's going to instantly cause social and ideological tension between those patients and doctors, that that's maybe not a good thing for, for, for health, you know? John Hopkins clearly does not make the health of their patients their top priority. If they did, they would not create the type of environment that would cause social and political tension and resentment between doctors and patients right off the bat. I mean, can you imagine accidentally referring to your surgeon by the wrong gender pronouns right before you're going in for surgery? Maybe the anesthesia's already in, you're, you're, you're trying to keep your eyes open and apologize, but, but you can't do it. And the last thing that you see is the angry, offended expression on the face of the surgeon whose knife, which you can see in hand, you're about to go under. No one wants a butthurt surgeon offended after being misgendered, giving them a heart transplant. Is that not okay to not want to fight ear, F-A-E-R, to perform a brain surgery on you? Man, look at all the, I can't even pronounce most of these pronouns in their usage guide. I, I can't pronounce like hardly any of them. V-E, V-I-R, vis, verself, exorm self, pure self, H-I-R self, pure self. What is pure? What are you, a cat? Is that? These people, man, that's where I'm going to end the show. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.